So I don't think of myself as a sort of heavily religious writer, but rather someone who perhaps initially quite reluctantly has been drawn towards the religious... So when I started sort of academic philosophy, I was really, like many of my generation, I think, very disappointed. Welcome to Such That Cast. For those of you returning, it's been a long time since the last episode, so I feel like I owe an apology, as usual. Um, but this time it's more personal, as I feel that I should also extend an apology to Professor John Cottingham. Uh, we had this conversation over a year ago, and I just feel so guilty that I haven't been able to put it up yet. The reason is, well, to preface that a little, um, I've been in two minds concerning how much of myself I should include in this podcast. Um, some of my favorite podcasters out there not only have great interviews, but also reveal a lot about their own personal life. I kind of decided not to do the same, uh, mostly because I'm not a very interesting person. Another reason is that I'm afraid it would just become too whiny, but I do feel an urge to explain that the lack of updates is not because I've lost interest in the podcast, nor that I can't find enough guests, quite the contrary on both counts. I guess I don't really need to say this to those of you who are already lost in academia, but to those of you yet to enter into the university racket, be aware that it can be a hell of a job sometimes. When I was a student, I thought the professors must have the cushiest jobs ever, and honestly, that might have been one of the reasons why I pursued a career in academia. Now that I'm more or less on the inside, I'm tempted to use a phrase a friend of mine used to describe his poker addiction. It's a damn hard way to earn easy money. The worst problem is really that it seems impossible to have any kind of separation between work and leisure, which in turn means that what may have started out as a hobby project quickly becomes just another item on the to-do list. And sadly, also the only item on the to-do list that you can actually postpone. And so the days, weeks, and years go by, and before you know it, that episode that I've been wanting to put up next week actually took more than a year to get out there. Oh well. I won't complain about this since I'm very aware that I'm stupidly privileged to even have a job in philosophy, but it is at least part of the explanation of why it took so long. In light of this, I've also come to the conclusion that the only way in which to bring out episodes a little more frequently is to spend a little less time editing. As a consequence, there are some noise artifacts in this episode as well, but I hope and believe they won't be too distracting. For what it's worth, I got some new equipment now, so I believe the episodes from here on will require less work with noise reduction and the like. Anyway, this episode is one that I have been really looking forward to posting for a long time, as it really is one of my favorites so far. Um, talking to John Cottingham, one, if not the, leading expert on René Descartes, who is in turn one of my favorite philosophers. As I mentioned during the conversation, Cottingham has influenced me tremendously through his translations, of course, but also through his commentary, even to the extent that I do refer to myself as a Cartesian on occasion with the obvious exception of substance dualism or dubious proofs of the existence of God. I was tremendously happy to get to discuss many of these issues with Cunningham, and I learned a lot from his perspective on things. As usual, we also talk a lot about his background, and we do also discuss the recurring issue of the relationship between religion and philosophy, a topic that has been increasingly close to Cunningham's heart. Okay, let's now turn to my conversation with Professor John Cunningham, conducted in a somewhat noisy room during the conference lunch break. Enjoy. And I tried to find information about you on this um, 
pretty much what I know is that you were born in London in 1943. Uh, you seem to have lived and grew up in London as well. And then you attended Oxford University after having been at the Merchant Taylor School. Mm-hmm. So you attended Oxford in 1962. Uh, so between 1943 and 1962, I know very little about you. Uh, and actually, there are also two other reasons why I'm interested. Because mm-hmm. first of all, you talk a lot about uh, the importance of contingencies. Uh, yes. So I'm interested yes. in the contingencies of your life. Of, of life, yes. Uh, and also, you seem like a... You seem like a proper classical philosopher uh, from a classically trained background. Um, yes. I mean, in my generation, um, the schools started specializing very early. So I went to, uh, I went to Merchant Taylor's when I was 13 um, and was immediately assigned to... In those days, it was divided into three... Sides, classics, modern languages, and science. Right. And uh, depending on how you'd done in the exam to get in to the school, you were placed, you were assigned. So although we did, I think, 10 subjects up to what was called O-level, that's to say the basic um, general certificate of education, uh, we'd, al- we'd already made certain choices. So I did... Latin and Greek a lot, and uh, if I'd gone into the modern side, it would have been French and German. Right. Uh, we still did French. I still did French, but I didn't do German. So that, uh, <laughs> and similarly, if one had done been in the science side, one would have um, done more sciences. Right. So, but and then after sixteen, seventeen, it was then all pretty much entirely Latin, Greek, and ancient history. So, <laughs> the classics. Um, so really, by the time I went up to Oxford, I, I um, knew an amazing amount, of looking back on Latin and Greek, including how to write verse, compose verses in Latin and Greek and prose compositions. Wow. So it was a, a very, um, very specialized system. And then the first two years at Oxford, I did what's known as mods, classical mods, yep. which was Latin and Greek literature. And only switched to philosophy um, after that. Right. So. You said this was initially assigned. Um, so was it something that was sort of pushed down to you, or was this uh, some? Or was classics something you aimed towards all the time? Um, well, I always enjoyed Latin, which I start started at eight, I guess. So, but that was a suggested decision, I think, right. based on my entrance papers. Mm-hmm. I suppose I could have. Yeah, I think I could have said, no, I really want to do science. But um, that's so there is an element of contingency about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but, but linking to my own, um, what were those? And, and I've always really enjoyed languages. Um, and, and I um, as a kind of satisfaction about understanding the roots of European culture, I think, which you yeah. get from classics. Yeah. Which which means I think it's a pity that it's faded. It it is done, but mostly now not until you can choose to do it when you start at university. Exactly. But yeah. It never becomes second. Well, perhaps it does. I shouldn't generalize, but it's harder for it to become second nature. I think you were right about that. Yeah. Uh, you said you started Latin at eight. Was that more or less voluntary, or uh, or where did that early interest come from? Um. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up, as you said, in a sort of North London suburbs, and um, in those days a lot of people went to independent schools, which I think is very unusual in, in um, continental Europe. Yeah. But in the British system, um, it, it, it's very so. It was then very segregated. So people either went to independent schools or to state schools. If you went to independent schools, the, the, the curriculum from age seven was quite different. You started Latin, French, mm-hmm. um, many more subjects than you would have done under the state system. Yeah. So it was very hot housed. <laughs> looking back on it, and um, I. I think it's probably much better that it's moved to a more egalitarian system, although the private schools are by no means um, I mean, they're still flourishing. So right. In many ways, we still have that system, but it's perhaps less, uh, less rigid in terms of um, you know, class distinctions and entrenched values than it used to be. Yeah. Did you come from an intellectual background, your family? No, no. I was first to go to university. My, my, oh, really? family. my father was in business in, in Lloyd's of London, insurance. Ah, yeah. um, and my mother didn't, um, didn't work outside the home, <laughs> as was, again, was normal in those days. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, going to university was sort of something they were very excited about, I mm-hmm. think, to have their son and then their daughter going to university yeah. and of course this was before the big expansion oh, yeah. uh, only about nine percent of the population went to, to do a degree right yeah so having a ba you know, was quite <laughs> was quite something that's a big difference yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas now it's not that uh, not that big a deal yeah um, so looking back where do you think the spark came from that made you interested in classics and, and eventually philosophy well, philosophy is harder to say. I think um, with, with classical, I think I just had a natural, um, I'm not sure about aptitude, but, but enjoyment for languages. Um, and possibly the contingency would come in the fact that my teachers of Latin and later Greek, which I started at 13, mm-hmm. were just very good. They happened to be better. If I had a brilliant math teacher or a brilliant French teacher, it might have been different. Oh, yeah, that's so important. Yeah. So that was that side of it. Um, I was interested in philosophy um, in the sense that I read Sartre, Nietzsche, those sorts of things at school. Um, Existentialism. People like Colin Wilson, I think, not not particularly well known. I've read Colin Wilson. He actually inspired me a lot. I was very impressed by him. But but then when I got to Oxford and... um, I didn't think about philosophy much when I was involved in the classic stuff. And then um, starting, it was a bit of a disappointment because it was a very dry subject in those days. The heyday of so-called linguistic philosophy. What do you mean by X? Exactly. Because these were the 60s in Oxford. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting in itself. So so you uh, you were more leaning towards more existentialist philosophy earlier on? Yes. I think partly because of an interest in these grand synoptic questions, right. you know, about the meaning of life and, and the significance of the human predicament. And then, so when I started sort of academic philosophy, I was really, like many of my generation, I think, very disappointed. Mm-hmm. It seemed very dry, very narrow, very uh, analytic. Although we did do a lot of 
the course I did was called Greats, so-called right. li- Literae Humaniores, which was um, um, classical philosophy. So we read the whole of Plato's Republic in the original Greek, whole of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in, in Greek, with, again, very specialized. Yeah. Uh, and then we kind of jumped to modern contempt people like Strawson, Eyre. Yep. Um, so with nothing in between. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't until I was a graduate student that I got on to um, Descartes, for right. example. And um, in a way kind of recaptured that enthusiasm for philosophy as a sort of grand synoptic Exactly, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Uh, so was there a sense in which you felt that you sort of pushed towards doing it the Oxford way back then? That um, We didn't have much choice. I think it's easy to forget that, that um, nowadays people are sort of encouraged to um, express themselves in their choice of degrees and so on. You pretty much, it, it was very hierarchical mm-hmm. in those days. I mean... Um, when I was at college, um, women had to be out of the college grounds by, uh, I can't remember when, seven <laughs> o'clock at night or something. And if you were late back into college, if you were after, back after 11.30, mm-hmm. the porter would take your name. <laughs> and if it happened more than twice a week or something, you'd be, your name would be passed on to the dean. Right. So it was really, like, in a way, like a school, like a boarding school. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that same went for... You know, we were given our essay assignments. There were very, very little in the way of options or electives right. told what to do. And by, I mean, obviously, there's rebellion is natural that. But by and large, looking back, we did what we were told. To <laughs> yeah, do. yeah. I was wondering about that because it seems like the '60s was sort of the time for rebellion against those kinds of systems. It was yes. It it was starting. Um, there was a lot of agitation about. Uh, allowing women into colleges, for example, um, and sit-ins were beginning, I think probably more when I was a graduate student than as an undergraduate. Um, And, um, yes, the hippie era really... I I went to the States for a year uh, in the course of my graduate uh, studies, and there it really did seem like the hippie era had yeah. taken off completely. <laughs> Where in the States? Uh, to uh, the West Coast. Oh, right. Uh, University of Washington. <laughs> yes. I had one year there teaching and studying, which was uh, a complete change from the rather <laughs> narrow world of Oxford. Yeah. Very liberating in, in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? The most... Uh, yes, I did. I've always liked the States. I I met my wife there during my future wife during that time, and um, so we've been back a lot since, as well as going back for lectures and things. The two countries are so different. You know, the old cliche about two countries divided by a common language. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I mean, although despite all the um, the link, the linguistic links, the ways of thinking are are different and, and the nuances of language are different. Um, it's, we've often, my wife and I have often discussed whether to live in, in North America or Britain and yeah. uh, on the whole my wife always persuades me that Britain has a, a richer culture um, 
I, th- I think this is true in Europe gen- generally. Yeah. yeah, guys, I was looking at some of your very earliest publications uh, and talks, and you wrote about yeah, what I assume what we refer to as affirmative action. Um, you wrote about race and individual merit, mm. um, and also other more sort of political, social issues. It seemed in those early days. Um, was that a passion that you that was very strong back then? Was that? Uh, um. I've always had an interest in ethical issues. I mean, again, I think it's partly connected with this idea of synoptic philosophy. I I don't think I would ever have wanted to see myself just as an epistemologist working on conditions of knowledge. And I did teach a course on philosophy of law, um, which um, got me into issues like punishment, uh, individual rights... I haven't done much on that since, but I think my more recent interests in religion are connected with that, that, that interest in moral philosophy, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had an agenda, particularly in those days. Um, it was rather, and I think this is the way most of my colleagues did, and perhaps many still do, philosophy. Uh, an issue comes up, it might be the morality of punishment. You look at the literature, you maybe make some points about it, hopefully make a new point that hasn't been made before or whatever. And then that's it. Yep. As, as, you know, as they say on, in private eye, uh, dot, 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 that's it. <laughs> there, w- there wasn't any further telos or, or, exactly. or goal. So it's very much piecemeal philosophy. Right. Um, and um, I think one way in which I've changed is, is that now... I don't think I'd be satisfied uh, with uh, piecemeal philosophizing. Um, I I think um, the traditional idea of philosophers as having to develop a world view where all the bits fit together, or maybe there are bits which don't fit, but at least it's an overview. Um, That has started to preoccupy me much more. Exactly. in recent years. But I think in those days I've just in, enjoyed trying to clarify some of the issues. In, uh, though uh, political, I, I think socio-political philosophy is a kind of special area which um, is very much worked on and I don't think I could have ever gone down that route right. uh, working on, say, distributive justice or something. I... I I don't have enough uh, passion for politics, I'm afraid. <laughs> Perhaps I'm too like Descartes, who, who liked to keep out of all that. Right, but, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll get back to that worldview yeah. thing later, actually. Uh, that's mm. interesting. Um, um, yeah, one more piece of sort of background information, because this is a big concern. I think actually most of my listeners are graduate students, uh, PhD mm. students, uh, early career um, philosophers. Mm. And of course the big challenge right now is getting a job at all in philosophy. Mm. Uh, what was it like back then? Did you have a hard time securing a position after your graduation? Um, well, the, there were many fewer positions. The big expansion hadn't really got underway yeah. uh, starting in the 60s. Though, um, there were many fewer people competing for the jobs, too. Yeah. I think one of the things that's changed, which is, is that people are 
forced to try and publish very early. And in many ways, that's detrimental, I think. People are forced to say something before they're really sure what their views are. And it was competitive in my day, and um, many people didn't enter the profession but had to think of other things. But it wasn't, there wasn't this sort of requirement to, to prove yourself almost immediately. Um, some, in fact, I got my first job before I'd finished my PhD. Oh, right. I think it would have been hard to get promotion without a PhD, but it was still, in England anyway, America I think by then had established the PhD as a, as a sort of meal ticket. But, yeah. um, so, I think it is very tough now, um, in all sorts of ways. Um, people have to slog through, get the PhD before they can even apply. And for most good jobs, you also need a couple of publications, really, to be shortlisted. So yep. um, I think it's a very tough world to, to make one's way in. <laughs> um, and also there are all sorts of funding constraints which... Um, which leave people with great burdens of debt, at any rate in England. Um, In my day, um, people had their grants, you know, their university fees paid and everything, and generally a grant added on to that. So it was, uh, for the the, the 9% or whoever it was, life was a lot lot easier. Yeah. Um, So you said that's... It's only when you got into your graduate when you sort of discovered, or not discovered, but that's when you really got into Descartes. And uh, mm. so what really, what fascinated you so much? Well, the, you, you mentioned the grand questions and so on. Um, but there are many philosophers mm. who have touched upon the grand questions. So why Descartes in specific? Yes. Um, of course, it's hard to know how much one's added on with hindsight. <laughs> um, I, I think the... I. Uh, Perhaps grand questions. If you look at the meditations, for example, th- this is a sort of individual, lonely journey of the meditator fr- yeah. from doubt to self-knowledge towards knowledge of God and then the world. Um, so it's a very dramatic personal quest in, in terms of which these big questions are raised. Mm-hmm. But also, the other factor, I think, was th- is that Descartes is a philosopher who has an amazing breadth. I mean, he, he's generally studied as, a, as an epistemologist, as, you know, as if he's obsessed with questions about how do I know I'm really awake or asleep. You know, yeah. But actually, there's, there's a metaphysics, there's an ethics, often not studied much. That he, there's psychology, physiology, and of course, a whole physics. Yeah. Uh, it, so it's, an inter, it's a grand integrated system. And although there are obviously elements of it which are suspect, the enterprise, I think, appealed to me. I, I don't think I'm retrojecting. I think the um, the idea of a grand interconnected enterprise of, of philosophy um, did appeal to me. Although, you know, a lot of most of my work on the, the DPhil was was about very detailed issues in in Cartesian philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you did that, you had uh, Sir Anthony Kenny as your supervisor, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. Uh, how did he influence your reading of Descartes? Uh, because he is, of course, a grand Descartes scholar himself. Yes. Well, he was a very meticulous and um, helpful supervisor. But I think he probably got me into Descartes because I, I was initially planning to work on Aristotle as a, as a, for my PhD. 
um, probably because I that's something I knew more about. Um, but I happened to go into a seminar of, of uh, Anthony Kenny's uh, at Balliol College, and um, not only did I enormously enjoy it, but he he mentioned at the end, if anyone's looking for a thesis topic, I've got some interesting ones. <laughs> so I, I there and then went up and spoke to him afterwards and um, ended up working on this particular text called The Conversation with Berman, oh, uh, yes. which is an interview Descartes gave to a young Dutchman, Franz Burman, oh, in 1648, oh, wow. uh, which had never been um, translated into English. No, uh, I didn't even know about it. All right. So that was my, actually my first publication, which was right. a sort of shortened version of the thesis. Ah, okay, uh, I see. What's special? Uh, what's going on in that one? Well, it's extraordinary. Um, he interviews, it's very like a modern interview, but of an immensely detailed kind. He comes along with the texts of the meditations and the principles of philosophy that <laughs> Descartes' magnum offers, and actually says on page so you say that, but hang on, you know, later on you say that. Well, <laughs> and so um, Descartes gives his answers, right. in many cases casting light on quite crucial issues. Right. Of course, it's not written by Descartes. It's written by the notes, yeah. based on the notes that Burman took without what we now have the uh, microphone to help us. Yeah. Uh, but um, it, it, it's, a, it's a great source, I think. Mean, uh, Interesting. Uh, and I'm one of the main reasons I wanted to interview mm. you for, like, basically, you, some of your the three main topics of yours are the three topics that I'm most mm. interested in myself, um, mm. partly. Um, actually largely even costly like I was immensely inspired by your book, books on Descartes hmm. um, and I sometimes refer to myself as a Cartesian um, but that has sort of become a swear word mm -hmm. uh, in modern circles uh, would you refer to yourself as a Cartesian and if so with which qualifications um, <laughs> no I, I'm a, it's a Cartesian scholar but not a Cartesian in the yeah. sense of supporting his views, particularly on mind and body. I mean, um, again, I think the generation I grew up in philosophically was very influenced by people like Gilbert Ryle, yep. whose concept of mind sort of systematically took apart Descartes. And the idea that I am a disembodied mind... Um, is often associated with Descartes, the substance dualism. Yep. And that clearly is untenable. I mean, it's the more we've discovered about ourselves since Descartes' day, the more it's become clear, I think, that oh. our mental faculties aren't pure incorporeal faculties, but are intimately bound up with, with brain activity. And yep. But actually, um, one of the things that Descartes not credited for often, is his interest in the whole human being. Right. What, what he called le vrai homme, mm -hmm. the, the genuine human, or, or <laughs> verus homo in Latin, which, it, which he says is a, a unit, a, a complete thing in its own right, right. Of, of flesh and blood with, with sensations and, and um, conscious states of that kind, but um, essentially embodied. So Although he thinks we can form this abstract conception of ourselves as a thinking thing, raise cogitants, 
he's quite well aware that in our ordinary life as human beings, we are embodied creatures. Yep. So he's much more subtle thinker than the caricature Descartes. Exactly, yeah. yeah, there's something about the primacy of consciousness that appeals to me, uh, that emphasis on consciousness as the, as the origin of, of everything, pretty much. Yes. I think a lot of people. I've, I've been noticing that this this weekend in in uh, in uh, this conference, that I think a lot of people are quite influenced by um, the kind of phenomenological tradition. Yeah, exactly. Which, which somehow thinks that consciousness is basic both to psychology and to science. The sort of ultimate units of reality are our impressions. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, a view which is not nearly so influential in, in the Anglophone oh, interesting, yeah. philosophical world. Right. You know, people often talk about this continental versus yeah. analytic, and <laughs> it, it's, it, it's not very helpful, I think. But in, on that one point, I think perhaps there is a bit of a division. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you ask most British philosophers whether particles, uh, molecules, atoms or conscious impressions are more fundamental, I, I would suspect the great majority would say the former. Yeah. Um, it's part of this naturalist so-called ethos which, which permeates a lot of Anglo-American philosophy at present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the more positivist. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. I think it does have roots in, in, in positivism, which was still... Kind of a receding but still present shadow when, yeah. when I was an undergraduate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. <laughs> I also read interestingly that one of your examiners was Bernard Williams. Mm. Uh, did you have much interaction with him? Yes, I, I used to see him a bit on the Descartes conference scene um, because he was very interested in Descartes at that time and um, kept up with him um, you know, through the years. Um, I think he's one of the most um, brilliant, was one of the most brilliant moral philosophers of our time, and yeah. has been enormously influential. I think partly in, I mean, he was just an incredibly quick thinker and very elegant in his writing. And you couldn't imagine him writing this dry academic science sort yeah. of oriented style that's now become so common. Mm -hmm. um, so I think he's very attractive as a writer and a stylist, uh, also a humane philosopher. But I've come to think in recent years that he was, I mean, I shouldn't presume to criticize really, but that he was too attracted by the Nietzschean idea that we could, we can somehow create our own lives, yeah, yeah, yeah. create our own values. Um, projects, Bernard called it, the right. projects that I can um, make my own and somehow that generates normativity. The way I should live is how I can live with integrity in accordance with my chosen projects. Right, yes. And I don't know what you think about that, but I feel that to be too... Um, it doesn't acknowledge... The, ob the true objectivity of value, that there are certain values which exert a call on me whether I like it or not, mm -hmm. and my own projects might turn out to be radically wrong and I might have to reorient them. Yeah, it quickly wears towards subjectivity and so on. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. maybe hedonism even. Mm. Yeah, there was this 
famous um, example he gave of Gauguin, um, which where the question is, you know, Gauguin went and dumped his wife and family and went out to the South Seas. Uh, and um, Bernard Williams asked, was this the right decision? Well, it depends on the, what happened. If it turned out that he became a great painter, then yes. It was, exactly. if, if not, then it was a mistake. Right. So it makes the value and the morality of his decision very, very contingent, really. Yeah, yeah exactly. That sounds very Nietzschean as well, yeah. Yes, I think that's, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, getting back to your Descartes work, uh, which you started early, uh, one thing that fascinated me is that I think certainly many people in my generation, we have read, we have never read Descartes in original. We have always read Descartes through you mainly. Mm. Uh, and it seems to me it must be such a daunting task to, to sort of be the voice of Descartes. Yes, it's, it is a fascinating task translating. It's, um, it's a, if you're translating a philosopher, it's a philosophical task as well as a linguistic one. Um, I, I'm very impressed with Descartes as a writer, particularly in the Meditations, where he writes this beautiful classical Latin. Um, the French is not Descartes' own. It's a translation made by the Duc de Luynes a few years later after the first edition in 1641. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think it's not nearly as clear and, and as precise as, as the Latin in most okay. cases. And that's not to say he, wa he wasn't a fluent uh, stylist in, in his native language, French. The discourse, the discourse on the method, written a few years earlier, 1637, uh, is, of course, in French and broke ground in that way as being a sort of vernacular yep. text. But... Um, Yes, the the main I, the view I took, and of course I had we we divided up Descartes' works between the three of us, but I mainly did the Latin works. But the view I took, which was shared by my co-translators, was that one should look at the meaning, not the words. Uh, if you see what I mean, I, sometimes people have written saying, "Oh, you translate this word as X in the," but then later on you translate it as Y and right, what. Yeah. To which the answer is, of course. Yeah. You know, any <laughs> translator who tried to do a one-one correspondence w would not understand what translation is about. Mm -hmm. um, and I also wanted to make it as clear and transparent to the modern reader as the Latin would have been in his day. Right. Which, I mean, Latin, of course, then was the international language, rather like English is mm -hmm. today, so that... Um, it's not that he was writing in a in a foreign language. It was it was the language of communication in the scholarly world. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing artificial about it, and I wanted to try and capture that kind of flow. It's also quite fun because if you're slogging away trying to write books and articles, uh, uh, which sometimes you have mornings where you stare at the blank screen. Yeah. <laughs> with translation, you always get on with it. Yeah, and you yeah. say, well, I'll do this. Uh, and, and so it's uh, it's satisfying in that way. You can yeah. see the progress happening. Right, exactly. But did you feel that you had to make philosophical choices? Like, my choice right here, right now, is going to influence how people understand Descartes. Did you have that feeling? Yes. Um, one example is this word cogito, yeah. um, 
there had been a translation by the famous Elizabeth Anscombe and her husband Peter Geach um, of some extracts. It wasn't a, nearly as comprehensive the one we did, but it had some key extracts. And they decided to translate cogito ergo sum as I am conscious, right. therefore I am. <laughs> um, and that, I think, is too interpretative. Yeah, yeah. Um, for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the word conscious, consciousness isn't really in Descartes' vocabulary. Mm -hmm. uh, he does once or twice use the adjective conscious, which means sort of refers to internal awareness. Um, but cogito is a cogitative, an intellectual act, mm -hmm. and it's um, it's important to reflect that in the translation. I think. Right. How do you view that? By the way, there's been this discussion about whether it's a performative statement or or, or what kind of statement it really is. Yes. Yes, there was a vast debate on that, which started really as early as the sixties. I certainly think there's something right about that, that you, Descartes himself said that the meditations was not an abstract set of arguments. Mm -hmm. It was something each individual person has to do for himself, him yeah. or herself. Yeah. He says, I think it's in the preface, um, I'm not interested in anyone except those who are prepared to follow along with me, follow the argument along with me. Yeah. In the, and of course, it's, as many people have pointed out, it's a first person argument. You, yeah. It doesn't work uh, just sort of as on the blackboard. It only works if you start trying to doubt yourself and you think that in doubting I must be thinking and in thinking I cannot at the same time that I'm thinking not exist. Yeah. So even an all-powerful demon couldn't make me not exist. Well, he could stop me existing any time, but as long as I'm thinking, yeah. I must exist. Every time I uh, enter or conceive it in my mind. Yes, as often as it's put forward in the mind. Yeah. So, and that's, that's the key insight. And um, because of the connection with doubt, going back to what we were saying a moment ago, I think it has to be think. Interesting. Uh, that also reminds me, there's one thing that I've been wanting to ask you, which is, Maybe the trickiest part about teaching Descartes as well, um, because typically everything makes sense uh, up until Cogito Ergo Sum, and then of course he gets to the existence of God, mm. uh, which he kind of kind of needs in order to get out of his solipsism. Yeah, and then of course, especially when you try to teach it to students, they're like, "Oh, these proofs are ridiculous," mm. so they end mm. up with Descartes' solipsism basically, and, and can't get out of that. Yes, what's yes. really going on there? Because it's a very interesting question. And I think that solipsistic view has very influenced a lot of subsequent philosophy, including mm. what we were talking about earlier, consciousness as the sort of basic unit. Yeah, of, yeah. Um, well, it's very common, I think, for lecturers to be, in the, in, certainly in the Anglophone world, and I suspect probably in Holland too, to be pretty hostile to religion and to God. Yeah. So they often <laughs> set it up in a way, uh, well, uh, these arguments aren't very good, and let's just get them out of the way, and then right. we can look at more interesting things like <laughs> skepticism or the mind-body problem. Or, yeah. um, and it's true that if you set it out, as Descartes was tempted to do in the second replies, as a formal deduction, then the premises are highly questionable. Mm. But I think there's another way of reading it, which is more in tune with the religious tradition, if you like. P 
people like St. Bonaventure right. in the Middle Ages and going back to Augustine and Anselm mm-hmm. particularly, um, that I, once I'm aware, of, roughly it's this, once I'm aware of myself, I'm immediately aware of my weakness, my defects. There are many things I can't do, many things I don't know. So I'm, I have a sense of myself as a finite, limited being, but I also have a sense, an idea of the infinite, yeah. something infinitely beyond my reach, but yet I still conceive of it. Um, so one can think of the third meditation, I think, as, as not so much an argument as a confrontation of the finite mind with the infinite. Right. Yeah. Uh, this is a view which Levinas, Emmanuel Levinas, I think, um, was on to. And it seems to me rather persuasive. It, it means that the, ref- the meditations, this part of them anyway, are perhaps less, though they can be exhibited as a rigorous deductive argument, which perhaps doesn't work, I'm not sure. Um, they can also be thought of as a journey, the journey of the finite mind towards the infinite. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, I think whether or not you believe in God, um, I think there's something about that that resonates with us. Yeah. We're unique among animals in that we, um, not just finite, but we're aware of our finitude, Mm -hmm. and that very fact makes us aware of the possibility of transcending it. Right. Maybe that's also sort of a problem with the analytic way of reading it, but we sort of see infinity as as a concept, and then of course the cause and effect between concept and the origin of the concept that doesn't uh, imply anything. Uh, but right. if you see infinity as something grander than that, yes, in a way it's an Augustinian and Platonic idea that we. In fact, at the end of the meditations, in a passage which is nearly always filtered out from lecture courses, uh, <laughs> Descartes says. Here let me pause for a while and gaze in wonder and adoration, admiration um, and adoration. Three um, verbs there. um, At um, the beauty of this immense light. Right. Insofar as the eye of my darkened intellect can bear it. Yeah. So it's a very, um, almost a devotional passage. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's Um, sublime, I guess. Yes, Rather, in a way, perhaps rather like the philosopher coming out of the cave in Plato and, yeah. and seeing the sun and stars. Something beyond contingent, the realm of contingency and finitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, we, we, we talked about analytic philosophers. I came across one paper of yours that I didn't have time to read, unfortunately. Uh, but the title, uh, was in, the title was intriguing. It's called Why Should Analytic Philosophers Do History of Philosophy? <laughs> what did yes. you mean by that? Well, history of philosophy um, has had a slightly checkered uh, history in, in the, in the uh, Anglophone world. Mm-hmm. Um, there were stories of a T-shirt uh, on some campuses in North America which said, just say no to the history of philosophy. <laughs> you know, rather like just say no to drugs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And there are a lot of people, I think, who, who think that philosophy should just be concerned with cutting-edge research, which means what was published in the journals six months ago. Yeah. Um, I'm fundamentally opposed to that. I think philosophy is partly about the transmission of a culture, right. and we owe it to, to our students to, to um, help them to see where we came from intellectually and culturally. Yeah. Um, however, 
um, I don't think history of philosophy should just become a minute study of historical context. It should always try to relate the historical issues to what's of contemporary concern and interest. So I think there should be a historical component, but it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of line I was pushing in that in that paper, so right. as I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> you always said, similar, uh, related to that, that you've always had misgivings about the current philosophical fashion for affecting a detached and impersonal style of discourse. And I also see in your lament what you refer to as, as hyper-defensiveness. Yes. And yes. the way I read you, at least, you seem to imply that these are modern developments in philosophy, that, that philosophy is perhaps developing in a direction that's unfortunate in many ways. I think there are signs of, for concern. Um, you're right that to some extent philosophy has always been about very careful dissection of arguments, so there's a kind of scholastic uh, element to it. Mm. But it connects with what you were saying before about the um, the life that the modern um, graduate student has to face. Yep. In order to make your way in the profession, you have to do the PhD. That and you can't really, um, at the age of 25 or whatever it is, uh, hold forth with grand statements about the meaning of life. <laughs> at least you, you could, but you, if, <laughs> if your examiner uh, d doesn't like them, then, then the thesis could be referred back. Yeah. Whereas very few theses are referred back for being over-meticulous and hyper-defensive. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of favors a strategy where people make uh, tiny adjustments to X's reply to Y's comments on Z. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's mind-numbingly boring in some <laughs> cases, but at least it's safe. Yeah. So I think our culture is, is pushing us in that direction. Oh, um, of course, it, it may partly depend on where one is, what stage of life one is at as well. It's, it's perhaps easier to take, when, you, when you're not worried about getting a job or promotion, then perhaps you can relax a little bit <laughs> yeah. and then feel free to develop a more personal stance on these problems. Um, but it is, it, so it's tough. Um, when you have to, but I think that, that more broadly, going back to your question, there is a danger in the hyper specialization, yeah. the old cliche about not being able to see the wood for the trees. That some people now are working in such narrow areas. In fact, when I ran the graduate seminar at, at Reading for, for several years, um, I would sometimes meet students at the cor in the corridor and say, you, uh, I would ask, are you coming to tonight's paper? And they, they'd say, oh, well, no, that's on ethics, isn't it? But I'm, as you know, I'm working on metaphysics yeah. or on epistemology. <laughs> I don't have time. And I think that's, that really would be very sad if, if, if we, we became such specialists that, that we didn't have time to hear what people... I think you're absolutely um, right about that, yeah. There is this thing from some recent psychological research, they call it the T model of creativity. That basically the most creative people are the ones who have like one area of specialization and this really broad knowledge of all kinds of disciplines like mm. and art and, and pop culture and whatever it is. Uh, and people who have those properties seem to be much more creative than, than other people. Mm. I think, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I think that's a lot in that, yeah. Speaking of history of philosophy, you have, well, you have been doing work on ancient Greek philosophy, of course, but you specialized to a large degree on early modern philosophy. Why is that era so intriguing? Well, as we were saying earlier, I perhaps could have gone down the route of being a 
specialist in Aristotle or Plato. Um, but I think the modern, the early modern era is particularly fascinating because we still have quite close contact with it. It's it's the inauguration of modern science. I mean, Descartes, of course, was was a, a produced a, a physics which was revolutionary for its day. Along with Galileo, he saw, had the insight to to grasp that mathematics was the key to physics. Yeah. And although his theories were soon to be swept away by Newton, um, who was more sophisticated physics, nonetheless, it it opens the modern age. Yeah. It also opens the modern age in the sense that the individual starts to take centre stage in ways that are sometimes damaging, I think, leads us down the road to, to Nietzsche and the things we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. But, but nonetheless, uh, we can feel we have very definite points of contact with, with, with these people. Uh, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Hume, um, Locke, Hobbes... And yet, certainly in the case of Descartes and Leibniz, they also look back. They retain that rich contact with Platonic Aristotelian ideas Precisely. and, and um, with the scholastic, with Thomism and so on. So for me, that's extraordinarily rich, the sort of two-way perspective they have. Right. Being very critical without disconnecting from that tradition. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Great. Um, when it comes to ethics, uh, it seems that you, maybe not originally, but you eventually turn to, to Aristotelian virtue ethics. Mm. Why does virtue ethics sort of, uh, I assume it um, corresponds well to the rest of your worldview in some sense? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, at least for me personally. I, it's partly, I think, a reaction against some of the utilitarian approaches which were prevalent when when I was studying mm. and which have s since become even more dominant. And a lot of those seem to me kind of silly games in a way. Uh, so that's an exaggeration. But, you know, sort of thing, if you move your left foot, you'll kill two people. If you yeah. move your right foot, you'll <laughs> kill ten. And then which one... Um, Obsession with consequences and often with with very unlikely scenarios. I mean, that's not to say they can't influence public policy and so on, but it seemed to have very little to do with the individual quest. I mean, for most of us, life is not a matter of the... unless we're grand political figures having to allocate resources. I mean, then I think looking at consequences may be the right approach. But for most of us, life is concerned, is concerned with joys and sorrows, successes, failures, wrong turnings. And we need considerable courage and, and um, strength to cope with, you know, with the problems that life brings. Um, and the development of character, questions about how, I, how one should live, um, how one can combat weakness. The interesting things about virtue ethics is it's not just a matter of duty, you know, the rule, the moral law in the Kantian sense, though of course Kant is a brilliant philosopher, but and, um, but it's about, um, partly about the distinction between virtue and um, strength of character, or what's sometimes translated continence. Yeah. That's to say there's a difference between someone who sort of makes themselves do what's right, yeah. but they really would like to go off the rails, and someone who is habituated 
by upbringing and then by subsequent reflection and training yeah. to to be at ease with who they are right. um, to do the to turn to the good because it's really the most attractive option mm-hmm. and I think that's in a way that's the fundamental task of life to 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 put it rather pompously to grow in knowledge and love of the good yeah. um, that's perhaps to put it in a more religious way but um, I think the as people like Alistair McIntyre have shown, um, virtue ethics kind of plugs into that tradition. And um, I think just is psychologically much more interesting than, yeah. than so much. That makes a lot of sense, and it brings us nicely to uh, to maybe the area in which uh, you've done some of your most controversial stuff, perhaps, uh, related to meaning of life and, and the importance of spirituality. And I'm a bit uncertain myself how strong a claim you're really making. Uh, I've seen your book, uh, The Meaning of Life, on The Meaning of Life, uh, summed up as you claiming that there is no meaning in life without worshipping God. Uh, would you agree with that uh, summary, or is that an overstatement? I think it's a bit of an overstatement. I think I, I slightly shifted here. I mean, in when I wrote that meaning of life book, I, I was kind of um, pushing slightly towards a, a more sympathetic approach to to a religious world view, but certainly not laying it down as as, as the right answer or anything like that. In the next one, the spiritual dimension, it perhaps became a little bit more explicit. Um, and then in the last one, Why Believe, um, it, it even became more explicitly perhaps Christian in its tone, not, not in a sort of doct- heavily doctrinal way, but in, in a way which was much more sympathetic to the specifically Christian tradition. Right. I think the... The basic problems we were just talking about in connection with virtue theory, the problems of how to live, require one first and foremost to abandon egotistical models of the good life and to recognize the objectivity of goodness. That there are, there are objectively, just as there is in science, there are right and wrong answers. Yeah. So for each, for you, for me, for each of our lives, there are right and wrong ways we can live. That doesn't just mean uh, right and wrong in a kind of crude moralistic sense. It means ways which ways in which our life is meant to be, ways which fulfill our deepest human aspirations. Right. And once you reach that step, then you can't sort of conjure such a framework out of thin air. There has to be some sort of vehicle for expressing that idea of objective moral value and an objectively right goal for human life. And I've come to think that the theistic worldview gives the best expression to that, and that ultimately the secular alternatives are unstable. Right. Um, So I don't think of myself as a sort of heavily religious writer or or an apologist in that sense. (laughs) but rather someone who perhaps initially quite reluctantly has, has been drawn <laughs> towards the religious and then more specifically the theistic worldview as, 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 the, right, as the most coherent answer, mm-hmm. philosophically speaking. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's very interesting because you have also criticized sort of more militant atheism and, and people like Richard Dawkins and so mm-hmm. forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
what do you dislike about their approach? Is it because there is an implication there that that well, I think actually Dawkins has said it that if you're religious, you're stupid. Uh, yes, like that's sort yes. of in between the lines, at least. Um, yeah. Well, partly I think they have a very scientific model of um, truth. Yeah. Truth is, as it were, represented as very flat and colourless, as if we should try and speak always in, in the austere, pared-down language of science. And that simply, I think, nothing... I mean, I'm very enthusiastic about science, uh, not at all in any way knocking it, but um, nonetheless, I think human life... There are truths about human life which can't be expressed in the language of science. Yeah. So that's one point. But secondly, I think Dawkins and Kerr misunderstand religion by thinking it's some sort of explanatory hypothesis. Um, now, if you actually talk to religious people, very few of them say, well, I've got an interesting theory about how the cosmos originated, or I've got an interesting theory about how human beings came on the scene. And they were, I mean, certain fundamentalists may talk that way, but um, most religious philosophers and thinkers, I think, aren't in the business of explaining in that, in that sense. They're concerned with questions about the meaning of life, the significance of our human choices. Really, the idea is the primacy of the moral and the spiritual over the explanatory and the scientific. Right. Um, so that's I, that's one reason I'm opposed to the Dawkins I think they kind of distort the way we should understand religion. So would you, related to what you just said, would you regard then God as being well to put it this way would you subscribe to sort of a God or nature that that God is nature somehow and that science sort of allows us to understand God better or something or are those completely separate realms it's <laughs> <Being laughs> a, a very pointed question um, I think you know I'm, I'm not very good at metaphysics perhaps and I think if, if, if you want to know about the natural world um, the planets, the stars, the molecules, the origin of the species, then I think we need to go to the scientist. Nothing wrong with any of that, and that's the right way to achieve the answers. Um, so the kind of God I believe in is one who is compatible. <laughs> the operations of God must be compatible with everything the scientist discovers. Not, not out of superstitious respect for science, but simply because truth, truth is seamless. Yeah. One truth can't contradict another. So uh, I wouldn't be interested in religion if it was a matter of saying uh, that self-evidently or, or carefully established scientific truths are wrong, you know, that we've got somehow got a hotline which gives better answers. Precisely. Uh, that would be absurd, I think. So rational understanding of the cosmos... To put it in religious terms, that's using the God-given gift of reason. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fine. But I think, similarly, that there is an objective domain of morality which we can use the gift of reason to rationally investigate. Yeah. And so that it's not a subjective domain of preference or emotion. Um, it's just as much a matter for rational discussion and seeking the truth as in physics. Right. So you wouldn't say that it's like a blind leap of faith? Not at all. No, I think, again, that there are two phrases, there are two ideas that Dawkins has promulgated. One is the idea of the God hypothesis, yeah. as if religious people are trying to put a 
hypothesis about the origins of the Big Bang or something. Mm-hmm. And secondly, um, the idea of faith as fundamentally irrational. Yeah. That does correspond to some kind of hyper-Protestant views, I think. Um, possibly Kierkegaard, although someone was saying to me yesterday that it's not even true of Kierkegaard. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but it certainly doesn't correspond to the broadly Catholic tradition where faith and reason work in harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, those terms of Protestant and Catholic are not very helpful, I think. It's, it it sort of gets us onto denominational issues, which yeah, I find yeah. rather tiresome. <laughs> You mentioned that the latest book was more specifically in the Christian tradition. Is there something intrinsic to the Christian tradition that it somehow corresponds better to your notion of meaning of life and your notion of the good life uh, and so forth? Mm. Well, yeah, that, that's a fascinating question. I think there are, certainly at the very least, there are luminous moral insights at the heart of Christianity, seen in stories like the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son. Mm. Um, And I think it's a great pity we are jettisoning that tradition so that a lot of younger people growing up now who've never heard of these stories, unless they happen to have been sent to Sunday school. Uh, so that's remarkable actually that something which kind of informed western culture for so long is being discarded I think you're right yeah Uh, and uh, one should more broadly say the Judeo-Christian tradition because in in the Hebrew Bible there are many equally luminous moral insights about looking after the vulnerable, the poor, the homeless the widows, the aliens Mm. which um, are of course highly relevant to to modern global society um, so we we need a we need a vehicle. I think, in a way, a lot of modern philosophy and modern culture generally is trying to say, well, we want to first we decide where to go ourselves, and secondly, we sort of get there as best we can. Mm-hmm. But in order to get from A to B, you need a vehicle. And for me, at any rate, the the structures of Christianity including spiritual disciplines like prayer, meditation, um, liturgy, um, may not be the only conceivable one, but at least provide a a vehicle. And um, perhaps it's to do with getting older. One perhaps thinks, maybe when I was younger, I thought, I don't need a vehicle. I can just (laughs) just, do it all myself. But I think it's not as simple as that. So right. This is a partly philosophically, it's partly a Wittgensteinian in, insight that we're a community. We we owe everything to interaction with others, a very understanding of meaning, language, and so on. Yeah. Forms of life are not things we invent for ourselves. So, so is this emphasis on religion something that's come later in life? Did you didn't have any specific interest in that earlier? Uh, I certainly not... No, I think for a lot of uh, my adult life, I would have described myself as sort of agnostic or not sure. Um, and it, it's probably the last um, 15 years or so, it's become more steadily more important, I think. But I, I rather, there's a kind of very convenient way of doing these things in England, which is Anglicanism. You know, if you if you don't sign up for a religion, you're sort of by default a member of the Church of England. Yeah, exactly. And there's a parish church, uh, Anglican parish church, in every village. So, um, and people do still tend, 
perhaps much less so than before, but still to some extent tend to use those churches for the rites of passage. Mm-hmm. Um, both our children were baptized, for example. Yeah. In, in the, so that gives one a sort of kind of default background of religiosity, um, which um, uh, it remains to be seen what life will be like when those structures disappear. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. No, it's the same. Mm. I'm from Norway originally, by the way. Oh, really? It's yes. Much the same in Norway yes. too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah in, in I think at least two of those books, you you write mm. in your preface that you are a bit worried that you're going to offend anybody with uh, when you write about a topic that's mm. as delicate as this one is. Mm. Uh, have you offended anybody? Mm. Have you received hate mail? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not by instinct a polemicist. I mean, some people like philosophy with. Uh, as, as one of my predecessors at Reading, Anthony Flew, um, philosophy with the gloves off, he used to call it, <laughs> yeah. good sort of scrap. Uh, there's, you know, there's a place for adversarial argument, but on the whole, I think if it's much more fruitful if people, in any argument, or, or for that matter, even in reading a poem or, or a novel, if you go along with it to some extent. Right. You may put it down and say, no, this is not for me, but at least you've got to be prepared to give ground a little bit, I think. Um, I, I think, I don't think I ever got angry questions when I lectured or gave talks on Descartes, but I have had angry questions when I talk about religion. Yeah. <laughs> I, particularly from atheists, perhaps because I t- now take a, tend to take a pro-religious stance. I think there are a lot of religious people around who are adopt a kind of holier-than-thou posture, which is like completely inappropriate. Yeah, um, which is on both sides. Yeah. Yes, or who actually think they're more likely to get to heaven because they're believers. You know, actually, yeah. an absurd conception of God <laughs> when you think about it. He would reward believers. Yeah. And why would it be interesting whether whether you believe? Um, so, and there's plenty of evidence from Scripture that that can't be right. Nonetheless, I think there are people who have that smug attitude, and that does alienate yeah. um, quite understandably. Um, also, I think a lot of people have come to atheistic positions as a result of a great struggle, perhaps in the face of opposition from parents or teachers. Yeah. And so it's an, it can be very annoying if someone starts opening up the debate again. Yeah. Uh, that actually reminds yeah. me of one topic that I really wanted to connect to this because I find this very fascinating. Um, because not only have you been working a lot of, on religion and meaning of life and, and so forth, but you've also been connecting psychoanalysis to this, uh, which on the face of it at least seems to be, at least in the sort of Freudian version, uh, religion is seen as some kind of sublimation of some deeper desire or something. Uh, yes. So they seem to be in opposition to each other, but you seem to have managed to bring them together. Uh, yeah, because you're absolutely right. I mean, Freud was very anti um, and thought religious impulses were infantile. Mm. I'm more influenced perhaps by Jung, Carl Jung, who, who I think saw, re- although he was he refused to be drawn on whether there was a God, mm-hmm. but he thought that the Im- that spiritual images had potentially great healing power in in terms of the integration of the psyche, mm-hmm. and. So that's one aspect. The other, I think, is that the psychotherapeutic 
process. Of course, you can't really generalize. There may be horrible psychotherapists around. There may be very <laughs> wise and compassionate ones. But the, at, at its best, I think, it's a process which encourages people to give up the idea of total autonomy. Yeah, exactly. Our, our, we aren't as nearly as much in charge of our lives as we like to think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be prepared to, in humility, to listen to the therapist and to listen to our own fears and anger and doubts. And that process, I think, just on an empirical level, can be very healing. Right, yeah. And I think there's a lot of analogy there between the, the religious process of submitting yourself to the the compassionate gaze of the other, if you like, the cosmic, right, the cosmic therapist. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a somewhat crude analogy, but you see where I'm yeah, going exactly. with it. <laughs> Can I just ask one final question to round it off? Um, Great. And that's simply you've been talking about that you increasingly started thinking about, or perhaps developing a worldview much more than before. Mm. Uh, so the obvious question is, where does the path lead from here? What are your next projects? Well, um, there's a book I've just completed, which is going to be called Philosophy of Religion, uh, with a subtitle, Towards a More Humane Approach. Um, that, I hope, will be out with Cambridge University Press next year. And we'll take up some of the issues we've um, discussed today, but maybe particularly the idea of... Um, the primacy of the moral and the practical in religious thinking right. over the theoretical and ah, yeah. um, hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I I'm, um, hope to bring out a sequel to the shorter book, Why Believe, which came out a few years ago, yeah. which will be designed... I mean, the Cambridge book will be for an academic audience, but hopefully also to the general reader. But this, the next one will be more designed for a wider audience. I okay, think. I see. Um, but I, I'm ho- going back to what we were saying at the beginning, I would hope my work will continue to integrate the various elements that we've been discussing, the moral, the religious, the historical, um, the cultural, and so on. But um, just have to follow follow the wind where it leads and yep. see where we go. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Professor Cunningham, for this very inspiring conversation. So, what's next? Well, the next episode is going to be another live panel. This one took place at the joint CEPE and IACAP conference at the University of Delaware this summer. And it includes professors William Rappaport, Deborah Johnson, Shannon Valor, and Sarai Hongladorum. They have all shaped philosophy of computing quite profoundly and in quite different ways. So I had really been looking forward to this one. Although my promises aren't worth anything anymore, I will do my very best to release that episode within a couple of weeks from now. I do also hope that I will start filling up the vault again soon, as I will be traveling to Oxford, Berlin, and Dublin in October, three cities that all host some of the greatest contemporary philosophers. I hope and believe that I will get several episodes out of this. And if you have suggestions for good philosophers to interview in any of those cities, Oxford, Berlin, or Dublin, please don't hesitate to let me know. 
Since the update schedule is a little random, the best way to be notified about new episodes is to follow the podcast on Facebook or Twitter and or to subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher or whatever your podcast application of choice might be. If you like this episode, I would also appreciate it if you give it a rating or leave a comment. That is both motivating personally and it also helps bring the podcast to the attention of others. I really appreciate hearing back from listeners as well, so don't hesitate to get in touch. And my heartfelt thanks go out to those of you who have sent me encouraging messages. Okay, that's it for now, but I hope you will return soon for another episode of Such That Cast. <laughs>